Please be seated, and uh, I invite you to turn to our gospel text today in Luke. Within your bulletins, you can turn also in your Bibles to Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. So this past Monday night, I heard this nasty rumor about changing weather. Um, as you remember, last Sunday it was nice, like it is today, but um, but come Monday, um, there was there was a rumor of the uh, beautiful sunshine turning into snow, a big snowfall. It was like eight inches, then it was 12 inches, then it was like, I don't know, 50 inches or something. It was all over the place. So to prepare myself for the big changes and swings, I did what any self-respecting Chicagoan above the age of 35 would do, and I pulled up the WGN weather forecast with Tom Skilling. Okay? Now, sure enough, Tom told me everything that was going to happen. He was very calm about everything. Yes, it's going to change, and, you know, there's going to be a big snowfall on Tuesday night and into Wednesday morning. He told me why it was coming. There's a weather pattern coming from the southwest. And then he told me not to worry. Don't worry. Weather's going to get much better next week. And uh, that was enough for me. You know, the weather in Chicago might be chaotic, but I've got Tom Skilling. I have an explanation. I have assurance of when it would all be over. Now, um, I find that, you know, the losses that we grieve in life are a lot like the Chicago weather, except there's no Tom Skilling. Um, there's no warning that it's coming. There's no explanation for why it's coming. And there's no assurance when it will just all get back to normal, when I can be happy again. Um, the losses come suddenly. Life changes quickly. Our dad calls us to let us know he's got cancer again. Uh, our position that we had at our company, where we've served faithfully for years, eliminated in an afternoon. All of a sudden, life changes suddenly. We are unemployed. Um, or we wake up to an ominous text from our significant other. We get together with them, and two hours later, the relationship is over. There's no good reason given. Grief comes even in smaller events. We have a wonderful dinner out. We return to our car, and there's a bright orange uh, letter from the city of Chicago on the windshield. <laughs> I find there's a real suddenness to loss that's just sort of unpredictable. It comes without warning. It comes unexpectedly. Bankruptcies, trauma, betrayals, injustices, injury to the body, deaths of people that we care about. It just comes out of nowhere. And then the grieving process after those losses can be just as unpredictable as the Chicago weather, where one moment we're, we're feeling super angry, and then we go we feel relieved, and then we feel numb and depressed. Uh, we cry for days, and then all of a sudden we can't cry at all. Um, one minute we're giddy. The next minute we've got the chainmail of anxiety in our chest. And we just wonder, why is this happening? And when will it all be over? When will I feel normal again? Um, we don't have a Tom Skilling to answer all these questions about the why and the when it will get better. But we do have a Savior uh, who went before us in our loss and our grief. He suffered the loss of all things. He paid the greatest price. And he grieved well along the way. 
Um, Jesus invites us to grieve our losses with him and receive the resurrection life that he has authority now to give um, so that we can gain a resurrection like his, so that not only can there be real losses mourned, but also there can be real new life, actual resurrection on the other end of those losses, which we are preparing for in Eastertide and beyond. So this Lent, we're going to unpack the last words of Christ from the cross. What I find is that these final words reflect what was in his heart all along. They reflect what he'd been training for all along. We, we wouldn't have known it unless he had been crucified and betrayed and unless he had suffered greatly. What came out of him was profound. What came out of him was beautiful. What came out of Jesus when he was on the cross, my prayer is that that same spirit would come out of us and those same words would come out of us as we grieve our own losses through the Holy Spirit. Um, we need to learn how to grieve our losses, which means we're not denying our pain, nor are we drowning in it. Um, and we're learning how to grieve as Christ did, honestly, and yet with hope. Um, not spiritualizing anything away, not papering over anything or minimizing anything, but drawing near to deep communion with God and our neighbor as we grieve. And my hope is that the soul of our church would be enlarged as we learn how to pray as Jesus did when he was grieving. That, the, that our individual souls, that we would become different people, that we would be transformed as we learn how to grieve with Jesus. So let's look at the first word from the cross, which is a word of forgiveness. A word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And we'll spend most of our time looking at the words of verse 34. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, we can easily substitute blaming for grieving. Did you know this? That grieving's hard work. Blaming is just plain fun. Hurting, being hurt and sad is, is, feels like weakness. But blaming... And being angry, that feels powerful and awesome. It's like a superpower. Um, because sadness can just be absolutely intolerable. It's like this intolerable, I can, you know, the deep feeling of loss is just like terrible. Feels like it at least. And so we, we, can, we can turn, we can do this magic trick where we turn our sadness into anger. And all of a sudden we just feel better instantly. Being angry may not be great, but it's more tolerable than feeling sad. And so rather than grieving the physical injury, we blame the doctor for not healing it completely. Or rather than grieving the relational energy, we blame the friend who said the careless word. Rather than grieving the systemic injustice, we blame people who don't care as much as we do about it. And when we substitute blaming for what should be grieving, we can then begin to desire revenge. And this is toxic and hurtful to our own soul. It only hurts us. So the first step of grieving well often takes us down the path of forgiveness. And let's consider just for a moment, what did Jesus have to forgive? Um, the first thing that he had to forgive was physical and personal cruelty. Let's look at Luke 23, verse 33, which references this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, crucified Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right 
and one on his left. You can read there, you know, Jesus' words of forgiveness. Now notice what comes after that, 30, the end of verse 34, they cast lots to divide his garments. Uh, translation, Jesus was crucified naked. Crucifixion was designed for maximum humiliation and pain. Roman citizens agreed in the first century, yeah, this is the most terrible way to die. Not just because of the pain, but because of the shame. It was intended to put you to shame. Um, soldiers flogged Jesus until his skin hung loosely from his body. Jesus staggered his way through Jerusalem so that everyone could see how pathetic he was. See him in a condemned, defeated state. Outside the walls of the city, they took what remained of his dignity, they took his clothes, before driving stakes through his tendons and his bones. Now Jesus was put on display in a place called the Skull, and this is a major crossroads. People coming and going all the time. In the words of one historian, he was exposed to public view like a slab of meat hung at a market stall. He was ripped from his community, his family, and he was placed then in a community of dying, condemned criminals, one on his left, one on his right. So there was physical and personal cruelty, and that's all we'll say about that today. There was also mocking and contempt, and that was also part of what Jesus had to forgive. In verse 35, it says that the people stood by watching, sort of gawking, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, these are all carefully chosen words. If you look at these words and the words that the father spoke over Jesus's baptism, you're going to find a lot of overlap. The most significant markers of Jesus's identity here are being mocked as much as his physical body is being flayed and crucified. It was intended to take everything special about Jesus and, and like rip it up publicly, stomp it into the ground, spit on it, and make a big joke about it. The, the rulers here and the soldiers here are weaponizing personal insights that they have about Jesus' calling. They're taking words spoken over Jesus' baptism to encourage him, and they're weaponizing it, and they're using it against him to mock him and mock his identity and mock his calling. And, oh, you're the Savior? I mean, Jesus came to save sinners. What a beautiful calling. And they're mocking him. Mocking him for being the Messiah. Mocking him for being the King. Turning something holy and precious and personal and making everything into a big joke. And turning it into insults that would ring forever or as, as long as they could. Now, all of this was wrong. All of this was inexcusable and godless and condemned before God. It was an affront to Jesus in every way possible. And Jesus had a right, legally, spiritually, before God, to hold an eternal grievance against every religious ruler who conspired to get him crucified, against every magistrate who agreed, who agreed to let it happen, against every guard who enforced the sentence, and against every man or woman who mocked him as he died. Every single one of the people involved in the crucifixion of Jesus had blood on their hands, 
and Jesus had reasons to hold grievances against them. We also have reasons to hold grievances. The cross wasn't the final act of sin, was it? No. No. Who's mocked you? Who, who stole from you something I had no right to steal? Um, who took your innocence? Who lied about you? Did someone betray you? Did someone abuse you? Manipulate you? Did someone curse you? It wasn't right of them to do that either. It wasn't, uh, it was, it was inexcusable. Not just a sin against you, but a sin against the God who created you. And a sin against everyone who's loved you and named you and encouraged you. Yet the final words of Jesus from the cross are words of forgiveness, miraculously so. Jesus here is free of blame. He's free of resentment. There's not a trace of revenge and there's not a trace of vitriol coming out of him. 100% of us will have an opportunity to forgive someone as Jesus forgave his tormentors and enemies. Um, if you would like to learn how to be free of resentment and blame and vitriol um, and revenge, consider with me Jesus' final words from the cross. And even now begin to ask the Holy Spirit to help you pray your own version of those words. Jesus says in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Just, let's, let's just take this one phrase at a time. Let's just consider the phrase Father here for a moment. The relationship Jesus turns to. He, he begins by praying, Father, so important. In response to human cruelty, Jesus seeks divine healing. See, he's not looking back at, at his enemies. He's actually looking up. He's going to his father um, re rather than reacting in kind. Um, he goes to his Abba. In fact, over half of Jesus' final words from the cross um, are directed towards his father. Did you know that? There are words of lament. He, he, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's words of trust where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's words of triumph where he says, it is finished. And he's just praying to his father. This is, in many ways, the cross is a sanctuary of prayer for Jesus. Um, even as the walls of evil close in around him, Jesus keeps praying. Um, and his father keeps listening. I remember when I left for college some years ago. Not many years ago, but some, some years ago. Um, I, I guess I, I remember taking some comfort that I had this no matter what place to return to. Like, it could get really bad um, in my life. Uh, there was a lot of unknowns and ups and downs. And I remember taking comfort in, like, no matter what, I can come back here. I can, I can, I can walk down these, uh, this sidewalk. I can, I can walk through this front door. I will receive welcome here. I'll receive a meal, a hug, a conversation, no matter what transpires, I can even start over if I, if I have to. If things get really bad, no matter what, no matter what, there's an open door for me here. And in, in his father, Jesus has a no matter what relationship that will help him forgive. You know, Jesus' father had been a refuge for him since he was young. And 
his father had blessed him and commissioned him uh, at his baptism. Jesus went through many highs and lows in his ministry, and his father was a no matter what person for him, encouraging him, directing him, being a safe place for him, giving him power and direction and comfort and encouragement. And you know, Jesus did everything out of love for his father. Did you know that? That he, um, he was showing his love for his father through his obedience. Just a few hours prior, Jesus had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, hey, not my will, Father, your will be done. And, and the cross is his your will be done action here. He's doing this out of love for his father. Um, so Jesus, you can just even consider together that Jesus doesn't forgive as an individual. He forgives in community with his father. And we can't forgive by ourselves either. Forgiveness is not a solitary project. Jesus didn't teach us to pray my father. He taught us to pray our father. Um, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, I think it's, it's worth saying that we often need another person to hold our hand and hear our pain and, and stand beside us as we pray, Father, forgive my enemies in Jesus' name. Um, if you've been sinned against, if you've been betrayed or wounded or assaulted, the first step of grieving is by praying it and, and praying it in community with a safe person who can pray for you and with you and um, help you process everything necessary for forgiveness. Um, the Father welcomes that prayer. He offers to heal the hurt. Um, and all anger and trauma and lament and hope can be brought into the sanctuary of prayer, which is the presence of the Father with all his children and with the children that can stand with us. Um, no matter how quickly the walls of evil close in around you in moments of pain, hurt, betrayal, um, our Father will hear our prayer from heaven. He will forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So Jesus begins his prayer with Father, and then he moves to forgive them. Father, forgive them, forgive them. With these words, Jesus is releasing. Jesus is loosing his enemies, and he's releasing them into the hands of his Father. And his Father is the perfect person to deal with the sin on the cross. There are occasions in our house where... Um, some people in the house, the shorter people in the house, don't agree <laughs> on who, who is the proper owner of a certain item. Like a gift box, or a book, or a cupcake, things like that. So when that happens, we take the item and we place them on a higher plane. So the taller people can be a just judge over who gets what. Um, the, the people down here need someone who's fair and loving up here to make good decisions for the whole family. What's Jesus doing? He's taking all of the indignities and the grievances down here and he's putting them on a higher shelf, and he's going, Father, I just need you to take care of this and sort this out. I'm actually releasing to you to forgive and to do so judiciously in a way that would be good for everyone. Um, 
there's a man named Gerald Sitzer who's lost his wife, his uh, uh, his daughter, and his mother uh, to a drunk driver. And he wrote uh, several years after, several years into the grieving process, he began to write about forgiveness. And one of his chapters was on uh, just was on justice uh, as it relates to grieving his loss. And he says this: Human systems may fail. God's justice does not. God is merciful in ways that far exceed what we could imagine or muster ourselves. It is the tension between God's justice and mercy that makes God so capable of dealing with wrongdoers. Listen to this. God is able to punish people without destroying them and to forgive people without indulging them. God is able to punish people without destroying them. Justice and to forgive people without indulging them, mercy. And the Lord himself spoke about this to Moses when he said, the Lord, the Lord, a, a, God of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You hear all that mercy. Then he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Well, there's the justice. The Father can be completely trusted with ultimate justice. He cares more than we do about setting things right, and that can give us freedom from bitterness and resentment. Um, this same man, uh, Dr. Sitzer, said, um, unforgiveness is like fire that smolders in the belly like smoke that smothers the soul. It is as ruinous as the plague. Unforgiveness does not stop pain. It spreads pain. Ironically, unforgiveness makes the unforgiving people the most miserable of all, for they, more than anyone else, must live with the poisonous consequences of their own unforgiveness. Now I'll stop here and just say that it is right to seek justice and retribution. It's wise uh, to set boundaries and not subject yourself to further abuse. Um, in fact, Jesus himself was seeking justice through his work on the cross, and he was confronting and exposing evil through the cross, part of his brilliant plan. Yet he, he did all that with a forgiving heart. Um, in his most traumatized moment, forgiveness came out of Jesus. When you cut Jesus, he bleeds with his father's forgiveness. That's what comes out of Jesus when you cut him because he shares his father's forgiving heart. Now, if you've been abused or if a crime has been committed against you, you can and should follow Jesus by handing that over to those above you, putting it on the higher shelf to the father of lights, who is the perfect judge of mercy and justice, and to the courts. Like Jesus, you can live with both mercy and justice, with a forgiving heart. We can seek restitution in this life without seeking revenge. We can seek restitution without seeking revenge. We can release people in our souls so there's no more poison. And we can seek restitution because it would be good even for those who are harming us. It's good for them to have the boundaries. It's good for them to have the justice. And when we do that with a forgiving heart, we magnify the cross of Christ, which makes it all possible. 
Look, Jesus is on the cross here so that sins could be forgiven. He was on the cross to, to cancel debts that could otherwise never, ever be forgiven. So that undeserving people could be included in God's kingdom. That's why he's on the cross. It's not just a good example of forgiveness. It's the greatest act of love ever performed in heaven and on earth. And it makes forgiveness spiritually attainable and possible. Not only for us, but for our enemies. Look uh, with me in this beautiful moment uh, towards the end of the passage in verse 39. One of the criminals is going to join in to the mockery here. It's the degrading at its lowest point. So Jesus is not being made fun of only by religious leaders, not only by the guards, but also even just by like the most despised level of people in all of the Roman Empire, criminals who are being crucified. Jesus is even mocked by them. And so he's mocking him for his messianic status. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But then there's this other criminal um, who sees what's happening. In verse 40, the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, uh, for we are receiving the due reward of our sins, but this man has done nothing wrong. And, and the second criminal said to Jesus, verse 42, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus said back to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. See Jesus saving and forgiving all the way to the very end. This second criminal had sins against God. Jesus is pardoning him. He's saving him only because of the cross. He was releasing this man from eternal punishment and eternal separation from God. That's why he came to die. That's why he came to be our savior. So we could all be forgiven. We could all have our sins covered. Like the second, this is where the church of Jesus is at, is we're the second criminal. We're saying, you know, we don't, we actually don't, deserve, we haven't been forgiving and we've been the ones who've offended God. We've sinned against our neighbor. We need forgiveness. Jesus says to us who turn to him and say, Jesus, remember me. He says, hey, you're in, you're forgiven. You can even pray this this morning. If you've never actually asked Jesus to forgive your sins, this morning is the time to do it. We say a simple prayer. Jesus, I've done wrong. I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me your Holy Spirit. I need you to make me new. I need you to, to bring me into paradise now and in the future. And he'll answer that prayer. If, you, if you've prayed that prayer this morning, talk to a prayer minister. Talk to me afterwards so that we can pray with you. Jesus prays, Father. Then he prays, forgive them. And then he's going to end it with, for they know not what they do. So we have father, which is relationship. We have forgive them, which is a sense of releasing. And then we have, they don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. And this is where he moves into representing the enemies of his, the human enemies of him. And he advocates for them. He's, this is where we see Jesus, the great and faithful high priest, the best, spiritually speaking, lawyer that you could ever, ever imagine is pleading the case of his enemies before the father, persuading the father to forgive them, giving him a very good reason to forgive them. And the reason that he gives is they're not the true enemy. These flesh and blood people doing all kinds of evil, cruel things 
are actually not the real enemy. The true enemy is not the guards and rulers mocking him and killing him. The true enemy is Satan and his demons who are animating all of this behavior. Human cruelty and mocking and blasphemy against Jesus are hallmarks of supernatural evil activity. Yes, the rulers and soldiers were tormenting Jesus, and that was evil, and that was worthy of judgment. And yet, they didn't really fully know what was going on. They were caught in the, what some people have described, the insanity of evil. There's an insaneness to evil. There's a fog of evil that can come over you. And uh, this was as much for the destruction of Jesus' enemies as it was for Jesus. Um, so Jesus advocates for them before the Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. One of the church fathers from the 6th century puts it this way. If you are belittled, you should bless the offender, but cast his rancor on the devil, since the devil is, both the, is the author of both the insult as well as the rancor. Who's the real enemy? Not the flesh and blood offenders, but the satanic force behind them. Now listen to this. What's the true battle? Not getting revenge on your tormentors, but winning them back. Ushering them into repentance, into reconciliation, into peace. That is the ruinous defeat of our greatest enemy. Is when our flesh and blood enemies are forgiven and healed and transformed by the power of Jesus' cross. What's Satan's strategy? Think about this. What's Satan's strategy and aim? To capture people, to do his will of stealing, killing, and destroying, to use them as decoys, and then to discard them and then accuse them forever. That's his strategy. Now, what's Jesus' strategy? To set people free, to turn enemies into family members, to liberate those under the grip of the ultimate enemy, and then save and advocate for them forever and ever. That's who he is, that he's the savior. Now, for some of you, there is poison that's been planted in your soul. You can even feel it in your body because of wrongs done to you. I want you to know something. The source of that poison is not primarily from the person who wronged you. They were simply pawns. They were simply carriers. The poison that's been planted inside you is from hell and Satan. And it's not just in you, it's in the person who gave it to you, unless they've been forgiven and cleansed. That poison was meant to destroy you. And it was meant to destroy the person who passed it along to you. Now, if you ask the Lord Jesus, he will give you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has the power to cleanse the poison from your system from your thoughts and your memories. Even as you think about the people that have hurt you and wronged you, the Holy Spirit can give you a peace and, re and replace the poison with that peace that is deeper and more powerful than the poison. A peace that passes understanding and overcomes evil with good. You can be a carrier of that peace. And then you are now contagious, not with a virus, but with, with heaven's virtues. You're contagious with it. It passes through you because of the Holy Spirit, which is given to you as a gift because of the cross of Jesus.
Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker who provided shelter to Jews during the Holocaust. Now, one of her neighbors in the Netherlands informed on her, and uh, Corrie was sent with her family to a concentration camp, German concentration camp. She was placed in solitary confinement. She was made subject to terrible abuse and uh, degradations to her personally. Now, after her release, Corey wrestled mightily with resentment towards her former captors. Um, and she actually tried forgiving and found it, that it was impossible to forgive her, her captors. She couldn't do it. Um, and, uh, and then at one point, the Holy Spirit gave her the power, and it was almost a surprise to her from the outside to forgive the soldiers, for instance, that had um, shaved off her hair. Um, and had degraded her personally and her sister. And here's what she has to say about that. I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but God's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. As we were praying for the worship service today, Deacon Susan had an image of Unforgiveness being like a wolf with a strong jaw and its bite on some of us. That the wolf of unforgiveness has like uh, a really powerful stronghold as its jaws are, are actually coming onto us from the outside. Unless it's something that we actually want to hold on to and more like something that's holding on to us. And we began to pray that the Holy Spirit would release those jaws and bring freedom. Uh, freedom from unforgiveness, as he gave to Corey Ten Boom. Um, so I want to pray for that now. I invite you now to um, to to put your Bibles down, put your papers down, and even open up your hands in a posture of receiving. If 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 you want to receive the power of the cross now, and begin to to not only forgive but also train for forgiveness when your moment comes. And now, Father, I ask as we've prayed many times that you would send your spirit upon our gathering. And I pray for the presence of Abba Father, the forgiving presence of Abba Father now. We bring all the poison that's been placed into us and we bring it into your loving presence. Thank you, Abba, that you know every detail of every moment that we have lived through. You know every word that's been spoken. You, never, you know every, uh, everything we've ever grieved. And so, Lord, we want to bring to you uh, the, uh, the poison of sin, the sin that we've committed and that which has been committed against us. And now we pray along with Jesus that you would forgive them. Lord, we loose and release all wrongs done against us. Lord, all betrayals we release, all abuse we release. We put it on that higher shelf where justice and mercy kiss. We, we, we put it into your hands, Father. We ask that you would forgive our enemies. Lord, we stand in a great line of, of saints that have forgiven their enemies as they've been forgiven. And our Father, we pray that you would forgive us and forgive our enemies. Lord, they don't know what they do. And we, we just declare that flesh and blood are not our true enemies. I invite you now, even as people come to mind, that you can even, in the quietness of your own heart or even whispering, Names of people that you've called your enemies that are not your true enemy. 
that even before God, you're declaring that that uh, that you now hold, no longer hold them as enemies, and neither does God. That there's an enemy behind them. Pray for grace for them. Pray for Jesus' mercy and peace over anyone who's hurt you. Pray for their good and their well-being. Pray that the poison would be removed from their life. Intercede for them. Lord, we don't excuse behavior that's evil or wrong. We give it to you. We trust you with justice. We trust uh, people you've given us to help lead us into justice. Lord, we forgive all bitterness, though. I ask for the cleansing of the imagination that the remembrance of evil would now turn to the forgiveness of sins, that you would now bring Abba's presence into every moment where there's ever been wounding against us. And we ask, Lord, that we would not see the angry face that the enemy would put in front of us, but that, that we, would, we would see uh, the faces of your people forgiven. And we ask now, Lord, that the first and primary healing that you give through your cross is the forgiveness of sins. Bring it now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let it be a great healing for us as we enter into uh, the rest of Lent. And we pray all of this, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.